0: Kia ora, you're listening to a Coalesce Produce podcast, PhD Unpacked.
1: One of the impacts of colonisation is a lack of the cultural connection, which are protective factors, support factors around some of these things that can happen. And because of colonisation, they can't draw on that. They're isolated from those supports that they would traditionally have.
0: A podcast where we unpack a PhD thesis over the course of 30 minutes.
1: I mean, some of the terms of like what we might call a victim or a survivor, that's quite a controversial definition as well. Some people say they need to be called survivors. Some people that I've talked to that are victims, and in the research they feel like they want to be called a victim because survivor actually minimises their experiences.
0: At PhD Unpacked, we're focused on bridging the gap between research by academics and community experiences in New Zealand. Not everyone has the time to read through a 100,000 word thesis, so we decided to sit down with the authors themselves and breeze through the tidbits and juicy details without all the academic jargon. That may mean that at certain points during the episode, I'll summarize what both James and the author have said. Speaking of which, as well as hearing my voice, you'll hear the voice of the host, James. James and the team have read through the entire thesis to ensure that we ask the right questions and get to the core of why this is important to Aotearoa. I'm Yelena, and I'm the narrator throughout the seven-part series and beyond. While James was in the room with interviewees, I'll be that one friend during their favorite movie, making sure you don't miss any of the good bits and laughing at James trying to keep up with the academics. Whenever you hear the podcast beats... (laughs) You know i'm about to come in and say something profound life-changing and hopefully meaningful today we're joined by dr adrian everest to discuss her thesis voices from the family violence landscape gifts and experiences understandings and insights from the heart of the sector adrian has over 20 years experience working with communities in the family violence and sexual violence space And on the back of completing her phd focused on family violence she continues to work in the family violence sphere as with everything the why is central to our understanding so we start the corridor off with james and dr everest talking about why she chose to do this particular phd
2: first off can you just tell us briefly how and why you ended up writing this phd specifically
1: Well, really I'd spent, as you've said, a couple of decades uh, doing the work in communities and I was really feeling like that there was a lot of knowledge and richness in communities and I really wanted to amplify that by bringing it to the research space and capture all of that richness and knowledge. And so that was really what was sitting behind the reason for the PhD. Also, I was finding that although there was some amazing work, we were still getting a lot of disconnections of help. Uh, for the families in whānau, and I wanted to really look into that and and explore why that was.
2: Was it something that was a few years in the making, the decision to embark on kind of, I guess, that real academic side of things, or was there sort of a spontaneous moment where you decided, right, I actually need to take some time to to go and do this?
1: I think it was that experience of slowly kind of realising that things needed to change um, on the ground and that that could only really be changed through starting to amplify and privilege some of those voices of knowledge more so we can get some better solutions and, and understandings of um, the right support out to communities.
0: Guess who's back, back again, back to fill in the context and make sure you don't miss any points. Firstly, we'll define what the family violence landscape actually means in Adrian's words.
1: What I call the family violence landscape, which is kind of like a new term, it's not used. so. I use that term because sometimes we call it like a family violence system, and that to me means a system of response, um, you know, maybe a statutory system. So for me, I wanted to call it a landscape because that spoke into the narrative of the um, participants of the research about that actually there's a lot of people invisible and hidden from the system uh, in the landscape. So people experiencing. Elder abuse, for example, people experiencing, uh, have a disability and are experiencing family violence, Uh, people from LGBTQ plus communities.
0: Definitions play a key role within Adrian's area of research, especially with the differing opinions on a what counts as family violence and b how it should be handled. Unfortunately, this has somewhat impacted our ability to make meaningful changes. We jump back into the corridor with Adrian talking about difficulties with these definitions.
1: So I think that what, sort of the theme that emerged from from the research was this problem of polarisation, and that was related, like you were saying, to definitions in some respects. And so you get sort of people trying to define the cause of family violence, and so there's very strong debate around if there should be a gender analysis on it or not, and You know, that is a debate that hasn't actually got a shared understanding on. Some of the effects of that have been that people get really polarised in their positions and so they become sort of like um, quite fixated about their positions and it acts as a barrier to actually coming together to support families in a way that is really inclusive. So it can sort of start with the best of intentions but then the polarisation leads to the fragmentation and and so we're not working collectively together. I mean, some of the terms of like what we might call a victim or a survivor, that's quite a controversial definition as well. Some people say they need to be called survivors. Some people that I've talked to that are victims, and in the research they feel like they want to be called a victim because survivor actually minimises their experiences. Um, and then some people say, you know, survivor is um, a term that really leave space for a person to move through that and uh, specs into their strengths. So again, both like with gender analysis, with the sort of terminology around victim-survivor, also when we're talking about people that use violence, sort of like an older term might be batterer uh, because that sort of links with earlier understandings of family violence being physical violence and only physical violence. There is quite a trend at the moment to be using people that uh, use violence because... People are sort of trying to leave it open for people's change and not labelling people as an, a generic abuser, not capable of change. So there's a lot of quite, quite controversial and very emotive uh, feelings around this for people because there's a lot of passion and a lot of passionate people in this working in the space and in communities as well.
0: For this episode, it goes without saying that legislation is a key part of this work. And even though I said it goes without saying, you know I'm about to say it. Here's a quick rundown of the key pieces of legislation. Firstly, the Domestic Protection Act of 1982.
1: That was very much more about marital conflict, you know, two people being responsible for sort of a disagreement and so it would be marriage counselling that you'd need. And as our understanding grew, we realised that actually there was a lot of power dynamics there and that it was unsafe to put people into marriage counselling when they're actually an abusive situation with the person that it's um, that they're having the uh, marriage counselling with. In
0: 1995 the Domestic Violence Act was amended to include psychological violence and finally in 2018
1: The Domestic Violence Victim Protection Act and that gave protection from discrimination based on being a victim and mandatory support in the workplace so you get your 10 days leave being able to be offered to victims.
0: So as our understanding of family violence has shifted over time, so too has the legislation. In saying that, Adrian did put a little asterisk against the legislation.
1: What came out of the research was that actually a total focus on legislation as a solution didn't go far enough. And a lot of the research had very uh, rich voices telling us about accountability, restitution, reparation, healing and all of these things go much broader and more holistic than the levers we may have with legislation and even in service provision.
0: Now back to the interview with James and Adrian discussing the narrative nature of the PhD.
2: Can you talk about why you put it together that way and and how that structure interacts with the methodology of the research?
1: Sure, so... What I was seeing what was out there currently is a wonderful body of research and knowledge and I wanted to think about how could we bring something new to that. And so we hear the stats a lot, Um, we hear the quantitative information, uh, very valuable, but also I wanted to bring like a heart, bring those figures to life, so a heart voice to that so people can really understand what, so what, what are the implications uh, for people I wanted to really honour the voices that I had gathered. And so sometimes we put ourselves in a role as researchers, as a privileged position of critique. And when I understood the voices, many of them, as I was doing the research, I understood that they were being very silenced, the voices of victims or survivors, the voices of the advocates, the voices working with the families on the ground. And so for me to then critique over the top, Of that didn't feel right for me. So I didn't do it because I think, who am I to be a critic of their voice? And also, by doing that, you silence their voice. So I wanted to amplify it. And so I packed around research that amplified their voice. I did have a section at the back to tick off the requirements for, for a PhD, but really the essence of it. Was about amplifying those voices, letting them sit in their their own knowledge without me dissecting them, criticising them. Uh, so that was really the basis basis for it.
2: Yeah. There's a a key tool which was very helpful uh, within your PhD, which is this them- thematic table where you talk about the superordinate themes and the subordinate themes mm, of mm. The, the PhD, which is. How I guess you break down the storytelling mm. into mm. chapters. I suppose, You if this was was, yes. was a novel, um, yes. I, I know that PhDs have chapters as well. Yes. Um, moving into the the first superordinate theme, uh, which is conditions of abuse, which focuses on environments of marginalization. Some of the the key points you bring up in in this chapter is cultural marginalization, men's cultural environments marginalization of women the concept of institutional grooming and ultimately a society that creates opportunity for violence there's so many elements at play within this chapter and and all the other chapters so completely up to you could you touch on on a couple of aspects within the conditions of abuse chapter perhaps some key findings or elements that when you look back on it you think wow those were, were really key things that i uncovered during the research
1: I think really, like it goes back to that question of we all, you know, might think family violence is bad, so how is it allowed to continue? And so that was the essence really of the conditions of abuse, just deep diving into why. And so in terms of cultural marginalisation, we are seeing a theme that people are not being invited to key places, key meetings, key wānanga, so that their cultural knowledge is not privileged. And so it sort of sits within a historical context of really privileging Western frameworks. And those are not the solutions that we need to be looking at going forward for New Zealand. We need to be looking at drawing on that wonderful Indigenous knowledge that we have and really privileging that and not marginalising those voices so that we get solutions that are very far away from what families and whanau need. And also I think in the cultural marginalisation theme, we get that theme of colonisation and that actually, for Wahini especially, the one of the impacts of colonisation is being the, a lack of the cultural connection, which are pr- protective factors, support factors around some of these things that can happen. And because of colonisation, they can't draw on that. They're isolated from those supports that they would traditionally have. In terms of men's cultural environments, uh, it was really interesting because out of there, they became two key environments. So there was that environments where men get really pumped up, and they're going out with the mates, and they're, you know, getting really drunk, and they're like colluding um, with each other about their behaviours, and it just builds upon itself. And that we have these family scripts that are really, really common in New Zealand around men and their roles, and. You know about mentioned crime, mentioned you know men should be the head of the household and those kind of things. And so it can be really unhealthy some of those environments for men. But what what came out of the research was this environment about men actually needing really good environments with other men, opportunities for really uh, positive male bonding, places where they can actually make an emotional connection with other men because a dynamic that came out was that men actually rely on their partners for the emotional support, and when their partners, they perceive their partners not to fulfill all of their emotional needs, they begin to get controlling and they begin to get abusive, some men. And so actually finding that in different places with good, positive men around them can be a really amazing protective factor, and that some of the men actually had to Seek that out and be very purposeful in that. And, uh, and I think that, that we need to learn more and amplify that more in, the, in our knowledge around working with men in New Zealand and really um, look at how we can support that process. I think probably one of the, th- the uh, another really interesting one from the conditions of abuse was around the institutional whanau and family grooming. And this is where we've had these systems and we have whānau and we have family and we have this perception of what um, someone that is using abuse might be. And, and, you know, it might be if they're looking good and they're looking tidy and, you know, they're in a higher socioeconomic background and they've got a university education, how could they possibly be abusing their partner? And so this is a really huge barrier because people might not even realise it, but they're sort of making those judgments on people around them. And it can be very hard for people that are, ex- that are experiencing abuse if their partner isn't an accepted stereotypical uh, abuser sort of profile. Very hard for them to get support, get understanding about that. Some of the participants had... Used abusive behaviour before and spoken to their stories about that, and they were saying about the the private and the public persona, and so people can meet someone and they can say, "Oh, they're a really nice, kind guy," you know, "Oh, amazing," and and then in their private life they can be something really different, and so it's like the stark difference, and there's some sort of case vignettes shared um, with me about that, that stark reality for women around, you know, their families sort of thinking, oh, this is a really nice guy, you know, be, be lucky you've got someone and and um, not realising that actually behind closed doors it's a different picture. And, I mean, that's seen throughout. It's seen throughout our families and our whanau and also our institutional responses. So that was quite a key theme that came out and, like to explore that more and um, yeah m- highlight that more because I don't think there's a, a a large enough understanding of how that impacts the support that we give to victims.
2: I guess as a whole within conditions of abuse there's a lot of trying to draw parallels between individual experiences and and you know as you point to the word themes being an understanding of of how we can see similarities between experiences because, Just as on the one hand, everyone is individual and the experiences that they go through are are deeply personal to their own scenarios. There are clearly themes throughout the conditions of abuse where we can understand that this is perhaps a a product of society or Mm. colonization Mm. or Mm. toxic masculinity and, Mm. and understanding that we can both have individual framework while also those individual frameworks playing within... Uh, perhaps as a society that is allowing similar experiences to exist. Mm. And I suppose that leads into the next couple of chapters, which I've loosely termed experiences of of people involved, but the the title of the two chapters that I'm referring to are Living the Experience and In the Eye of the Storm, um, which focus on children's experiences and adults' experiences. Again, there's there's so much to, to cover and I hope you don't mind me coupling these two mm, chapters mm, together mm. but could you touch on some of the subordinate themes from those two chapters both of, of children's experiences and adults experiences?
1: yeah sure So living experience uh, living the experience was about children and young people and a really strong themes that came out of that were that they silenced basically, and quite often we have strong adult assumptions about what should, what could, what will. And our young people and our children are really silenced and and their needs are really silenced. So there's a huge, huge, urgent need um, for us to privilege and amplify and understand what that is and not translate in ways that there's a disconnection for them. And really, like in terms of the family violence workforce, it's quite ageing. And so to create the space for youth to come and make it their own, because they're the next generation. And I think what came out of that chapter was really the amazing wisdom that they can share, the amazing support, the leading a different way of life that they can do for the next generation and also show the older generation uh, a different way, a different perspective, a different way of being. So I think that this is a huge, huge space that we really need to uplift, enable and champion the voices of young people and children in this space and we need to do much more. Uh, so, yeah, you can see I'm quite passionate about that. So, And in terms of the Eye of the Storm, there's still very strong themes in the research about victim blaming, placing the onus of safety on women. And when you think about it, it's almost an impossible task to predict, like what is he going to do if it's a a male doing the abusing, what's he going to do next? You can't really predict that. So you have these safety plans about what might, what could, when really we need to focus on the male if he's doing the abusing, what they need to wrap around them to keep them safe. So, you know, and actually where they need to be. So instead of uprooting children and and women to places of safety, we need to be wrapping around men what they need and leaving children where they are with their support systems and uh, leaving women in their houses and men somewhere safe Well, if they need some separation for a time. So that was really a major theme. But also another major theme of that was around affordable safety. And this theme of actually women being forced to go back to abusive relationships because they have to have a roof over their kids' heads. And that's the stark reality. And people might not understand that, but in fact that is a stark reality. Like you have to say, do I live in a car or... I have a house and I have to put up with the abuse. And I think it's important to know that that's not only for people in poverty. Like there's women that can't have access to money that might have been in the middle to upper class and so they can't access that. So they're still in that sort of same position. Their partner might be freezing the funds or they can't do it. So they're still in that same position of not being able to provide a house, kai the needs for their children And also even just being able to recreate another life. It's really expensive moving, you know, and we, like in Australia, they have some packages, you know, and they just give, you know, three to five thousand or whatever it is, or seven thousand package for victims just to get what they need to make a fresh start. And I know in New Zealand there's some help, but, you know, it really is quite a barrier especially if women have to move multiple times. It's really expensive, really uprooting for the whole family. So that was really a major thing to stop this whole cycle, is looking at how we can actually make it affordable for people to stay safe and be safe.
2: It's amazing that you said cycle, just as I was thinking. I was thinking it really is about the cycle and mm. the the cyclical nature of how... Uh, the the causes begin and then they lead to the consequences and and you really can see through the research that you've done how the family violence landscape can continue and as you said with conditions of abuse you know we can recognize mm, that this mm. is something we want to to change and to shift and yet it's really difficult to do that and and why is it difficult to do that and I think you see within uh, living the Experience and, and the Eye of the Storm, both from uh, children and adult experiences, why the family violence landscape is so cyclical and mm. it's difficult to change. And we have to recognize the complexity of things like victim blaming and affordable safety and how it's not as simple as if you, you should leave. You know, in the mm. case of, of mm. someone who is a victim or, or a survivor, we have to recognize the, the complexity of those situations, and a lot of the time it is not as as simple as that. And That moves us nicely into the, the next chapter, which is In the Shadow of Empire Builders, which starts shifting your focus towards, I guess, the response to mm. the family violence mm. landscape, and uh, the disconnections of help is a big concept here within that chapter. And you mentioned... Fragmentation, polarization, and a lack of unified vision has impacted negatively on the response to domestic violence and therefore this needs to be addressed to improve effectiveness in dealing with family violence. Can you talk to us about this concept of of empire building and the response to the family violence landscape and disconnections of help? I guess the gap Mm -hmm. between Mm. intention and implementation of help? you've
1: got these people that may have the best intentions they can be in community they can be in government and uh, so they're building up a system and they're creating this empire but because they haven't woven the knowledge they haven't woven indigenous knowledge they haven't woven those the richness of cultural knowledge they haven't woven in young people's wisdom they haven't invited maybe specialist knowledge in there and i think that's also the case with family violence like there's been a silencing of sexual violence within the context of family violence and so that's another thing that we're getting in there and so you're you're building these systems with on 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 a sort of a shaky foundation because you haven't had all of the knowledge that we need to really build what we need to build and of course that's then creating that disconnection of help for families in whānau and there is quite a body of research saying that what we're actually doing although there's some amazing things and that's in the next chapters coming up there is still a significant amount of a disconnection of help so we can have in the research they kind of explained it multiple people involved from all kinds of angles but the family actually isn't feeling like they supported or helped at all and there can be complex needs you know they can have mental health needs addiction needs or you know housing needs whatever it is and so the whole package they're not really feeling they're being helped in the way that they would want so the train journey was really a metaphor that the participants were using around us basically dropping them at a station oh they need some housing cool then we go to the next station next station might be counseling then we go to the next station that might be something else and and what we're not getting is is, is this whole integration that we're needing and we're just getting separate things being done separate times um, multiple people up the driveway they often say and it's really tiring and it's really telling and I think there was quite a um, illuminating uh, quote in the research about it, that experiencing being a whipping to nowhere. And that includes those people out there at the front line as well, finding it really hard to get those things that they need for the whānau. Yeah. So that was that, was that um, kind of um, chapter in a nutshell.
2: <laughs> there's, a, there's a point uh, later on in the PhD where you, you as a sort of subtitle, right about laying a place at the table for others. Mm. And I, for me, mm. I, I really understand that tie into that Empire Builders chapter about right. valuing the voice of, of diversity. You know, you speak to right. young people's voices, uh, cultural voices, um, inviting lots of people in to to the, the proverbial table and understanding mm. that this train journey isn't working even if people have the best intentions mm. and even if elements of of the help are there they are the kind of fragmented and That's right you can have valuable individual elements but the synthesis of those is contributing to mm. why that the help is perhaps not being as effective as everyone in the industry would right. like it to be.
1: That's right. There's a ping-pong to ground, basically, in some circumstances. Obviously, there's some amazing work happening as well, uh, but there is definitely quite a strong theme about that still still happening. And I think it goes back to the privileging of who whose voices do we privilege? And there are some loud voices and some very powerful voices in this space, and I guess it's like really opening up, low. Like, I've said about the youth opening up and creating a safe space for them to really speak and in, into this this area as well, yeah.
2: And moving into the next two chapters, which again I've I've coupled together and uncouple them on the train this train journey, you know, if you want to. Um, but going for gold and hermeneutics of the heart. Yes. Uh, something that we ask uh, our, our guests on PhD Unpacked is is where is the hope. Um, you know, what is working within the, the realm of wherever the, the research may be. And I guess what was really fantastic for us when reading your PhD was these sort of last two chapters absolutely speak to hope and mm-hmm. things that are, are, are working, whether it be initiatives or strategies or a focus on a heart-based practice. There's a, a fantastic concept that you introduce in these chapters about taking things from surviving to thriving um, so let's talk about hope a little bit within these two chapters. What what are things that are working that we can be positive about?
1: Yes, I think that there was really some common themes that came out. And I started the PhD thinking, great, I'm going to just get some magic solutions here and we're just going to plot them out there. But then I realized actually there wasn't that much research actually looking at the whole system. And so my broader focus, I was going to look at like programs and effectiveness and, you know, service provision and that type of thing. But actually the narratives of the, the, the participants were different to that. And they were talking broadly, they were talking, uh, you know, right across the landscape. And so I had to reframe the PhD as a result of that. And the strong thing that came across was around the heart connection. So, you know, you can be really different people, but you can still have a heart connection with people. And in the research, we kind of explain it like discovering the rhythm of families. So that's not about colluding with violence and families. It's about discovering, walking with them on their journey to get to that place of not surviving. We want to go to thriving. And to get there, we need those deep, trusting relationships to do that. One of the participants was referring to men who were using abuse and saying, otherwise you just keep performing sales. So they learn to say the correct answers, but there's no change in the heart and the mind. So we haven't actually found that way to deep dive and make that real relational connection with them so that we can work sort of at a, at a level that's beyond superficial. And... Some families will want to stay together or move to uh, keeping together. Some families will want to separate. And when we don't understand what they want, things just become covert, And so we're wasting our time. So to actually build trust, put everything on the table, move through it, is, is really important. And some of the things are really simple. Like with going for gold comes from one of the participants who characterised it sort of like winning a gold medal. And it was about his experience of just that connection with the whānau and they were both kind of had tears in their eyes because they had connected and understood what, what was needed. And it was beautiful. And actually it was something very simple like a bit of um, respite care. So it doesn't have to be a whole lot of things. It can be just a meeting of people in a place. And I think that that's really important and probably implications for the listeners out there is that anyone anywhere can just reach out warmly to people you don't have to have the solutions and often we try and fix and we try and educate and we try and teach and we try and berate or we try and do something and actually just creating that warm space anyone can do it there were the tangibles and we've got this in the big table of like what are some of the tangible things like having a click you like a Eclectic approach to service provision, and you know, really challenging some of those myths and stereotypes, and, and things like that. So there were very much tangibles, but the overarching approach was about that that people connection. <coughs> um, and I don't think we probably talk about that enough in our modern and uh, sometimes clinical world. It's just reaching out to people, you know, putting away our tablets and our <laughs> and our phones. And, and just making that people connection.
2: Absolutely. And you speak to the responsibility of everyone, but I think mm. you also speak to the capability of Absolutely. everyone. And often that is the case with PhD researchers, as perhaps from a wider public perspective. We view it as something that's really high-level academia that doesn't mean anything to us if you're not someone that can make legislation or you're not a practitioner, but... Uh, as you so eloquently spoke to, you know, anyone listening to this yeah. can be an instigator of change. We're all capable of, of playing a part and uh, everything you speak to about this heart-based approach, I think is, is very helpful for people uh, considering the family violence landscape in Aotearoa that yeah. it is not untouchable for I- anyone. Absolutely, it, it, Everyone yeah. has a part to play within the landscape. So, and that's part of what we're trying to do with this show as a whole is is champion the kind of approach that you've just spoken to. That that everyone has a part to play, but that everyone also has great ability within themselves to to help make change.
1: And most people will actually not reach out to service providers, statutory agencies. They're most likely to reach out to a friend or family member. And no one is, a, is immune. So, you know, often... Victims will tell me or oh, surprised it happened to me and uh, actually, yeah, none of us is immune to the situation happening in our families in Farno. and if we actually create the space to talk about these things you'd be quite surprised at what comes out.
0: As we move towards the end of the episode there are a couple powerful statements from Adrian that we want to share. I'll weave them in and out as we come to a close with the first coming in the form of the role we can all play when it comes to supporting our friends and Farno.
1: You can reach out for some specialist help if you're thinking, gosh, this is beyond me. But, you know, just offering up a bit of kai, let's go for a coffee, um, and just creating that space. If you feel that someone is just needing an ear, you can be that person. You don't have to... Often we look to service provision and we look to specialists and and there's an important role that they play in that. But that initial just reaching out to our neighbours... You know, teachers, some teachers do amazing work in that space and, and friends and things like that. And it's just about that people connection.
0: To end the PhD, Adrian shared a poem that was written by a client she worked with. While you'll hear the poem in Adrian's voice, I thought I'd share the written prelude. It's fitting that the closing words for the story belongs to a young mother who, in the end, found a path for herself and her children out of the darkness of violence and into the light. It's her case vignette that increased understanding of the impacts of grooming in the theme titled Conditions of Abuse. It's her poetic voice that challenges us to grab our chance to change things. And that I end this story with, since it is voices just like hers that have been silenced for too long and our greatest guides in joining the rhythm towards the elimination of family violence.
1: The future she held to, he gave not a slight. Love heart stabbed open, he killed her that night. Her body raw battered, mind shattered, displaced. Worn face, days crooked, make up a time waste. She lay in cold coffin, true love her eyes saw. Her young babes wailing, for mum and once more. One tear leaped released, Rolled down, wet. Never see her babe safe. She died in regret. A chance will come in form of escape. Grab now and breath as death is too late.
0: A big thank you to Adrian for coming on to PhD Unpacked and having a chat with us. If you're looking to learn more, you can have a read of Adrian's PhD, which can be found in the bio for this episode, On the next episode of PhD Unpacked, we'll talk to Dr. Alice Patrick about her PhD, non-Maori teachers teaching Maori language in English-medium primary schools. We are all in this together, he waka e ke noa.
1: Some people believe that Maori language is actually compulsory in primary schools. It's not. We're encouraged to teach it. So there's a huge expectation on them. And they've got really good hearts, good will, good intentions to incorporate te reo Māori across the curriculum. They falter perhaps in the execution thereof in terms of their practice, but they want to do it, I can assure you. There are barriers in the way, there are factors that impede um, their goodwill and their good intentions.
0: To keep up to date with the various podcasts and projects that Coalesce are producing, head to at CoalesceNZ on Instagram. And for more from us, it's at PhDUnpacked on Instagram. And before I go, big love to Wellington Access Radio for the interview spot. And as always, ma te wa.